At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits. Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what? But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people all working toward the ultimate goal, best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit, you forced me to use force. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Best in Show, the podcast dedicated to the show Rabbit and, of course, KBs, too. I'm joined each and every episode with the lovely and talented Bryony Smith from Kansas. Bryony, how are you doing? I'm doing well. It is spring here, and I am loving it. How about you? Uh, same here. It's actually getting kind of hot, honestly. It's just rolled right into summer. We don't tend to have four seasons out here in California. It's either really cold or hot. And I think of the last podcast, we talked about snow, and now I'm talking about running around a tank top. <laughs> well, we have, theoretically, we have four seasons in Kansas. I have the clothes for four seasons, but we don't always get a spring. So I'm really enjoying that. Like the whole next week of mid-May is supposed to be in the mid-70s, and it can be up in the 90s at this time of year. So I'm liking it, and the rabbits are too. Beautiful. I was in, well, I was in your neck of the woods not too long ago. I judged the Minirex National Show and actually had dinner with your mom. She and I sat together at the banquet with some other friends and it was really good to, to chat with her. And it was a beautiful weekend um, there in Hutchinson, Kansas, Kansas. And the weather was perfect. It was just lovely. And having dinner with your mom was like the icing on the cake. Well, my mom is pretty awesome. I got several messages after that saying that it was nice to meet her and she needs to come to more shows. Um, her uh, her favorite hobby, which actually led into the rabbits, was, of course, um, knitting and spinning. So she's become very active with a local group. And that takes up a lot of her weekends. But she still um, has her mini wrecks and loves breeding and showing them and working on her project colors. I can't tell you how many people walked by her at dinner um because we were kind of in a back table and they're like oh my god sharon you're here you know like, we're so excited to see her armando for example he sat with us and he's like oh my god sharon you're sitting here too like I, I haven't seen you in forever and i do still have mini racks and um she was you know she's clearly she's touched a lot of people and, and so many people were excited to see her yeah yeah and she and i of course geeked out on fiber she wore um, a, a handmade shawl that she had worn and Oh my God, we went down the rabbit hole of mohair and fi natural fibers and spinning and dyeing. And the two of us together would be very, would be very dangerous. We'd have dye everywhere and, and, and fiber stuck to our clothes. Like, yeah, we, we need, she and I need to have a fiber day. Oh, she loved it. it. <laughs> awesome. Well, I was in Ohio at the National Dutch Show that weekend. I would have loved yes. to have been there. I actually was there the previous weekend. Um, I got to judge the National Dwarf Oto Show and show in the National English Spot Show. The LOP National was also going on that weekend. Kansas um, really was a hotbed this spring, wasn't it? It really was. So it was fun. I think, um, you know, they asked me to judge the, the Dwarf Oto National. And I was like, why me? But, um, <laughs> but it was really fun. You know, sometimes I think the most enjoyable shows 
are those breeds that you don't see big numbers at every show because you so rarely get an opportunity to get your hands on just the spectrum of the breed. You That's know, a great point. at many shows, you you know, you get mini rex or holland lops. It's not really uncommon to see rabbits that people have bought from breeders across the country and different styles of animals and different people's projects. Um, but some of these other breeds, you know, where there aren't numbers. People, you know, don't always travel a long distance to shows if there's not going to be a lot of competition. So it was really, really interesting and enjoyable just to get my hands on the range of rabbits. And there were some very good ones. I was very impressed. That's very cool. And that's uh, that's a breed that's coming off of, you know, just accepting their their third variety, correct? That's correct. And I saw um, blacks, blues, and chocolates on the table. Excellent. I don't think I've seen a chocolate door photo in forever. I think I've seen more blues just because of the, of the COD and the development of the variety. But um, that's awesome that, that you saw all three of them there at the National this year as a judge. Yeah. Um, actually, last November at a Kansas show, Tex and I were joking about that um, because we said, are there any even still out there? I haven't seen any in a right. long time. And then we had like 40 of them because there's been, you know, wow. an, up, yeah, there's been a resurgence of interest in Kansas. And sure enough, the first one I grabbed was a chocolate. No and kidding. Yeah. Um, Bob Burgundy told me that he had purchased a herd from another breeder who had a lot of chocolate. So he's starting to get a lot of them. Um, so yeah, it's nice to see those out there. So cool. It's, it's, it's always interesting also to see breeds kind of, I don't want to say rebound. Cause I'm not saying the dwarf photos had a, you know, a latent stage, but you know, it's, they breeds do go in cycles and, and if dwarf photos are maybe kind of coming back and maybe that, that extra new variety has maybe inspired some interest and fired up some people to raise rabbits and th- that breed again, or, or to get into them for the first time. That's, that's pretty cool. It's, it's, it's another reason why new varieties are, are an important advent to our addition to, you know, what we do in the ARBA. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, just people getting in and showing enthusiasm, that's a lot of times what kind of initiates some of these, you know, local resurgences of a breed because, you know, people have someone to compete with, they have someone to buy and trade stock with. And then, you know, other people see that this is a fun breed with competition, they jump into. So sometimes it only takes one person to really kickstart a breed. Absolutely. Yeah, we've seen that so many times across the country. And two, to have a national show. Um, in an area, sometimes that, or our convention in an area that tends to, to bring people out of the woodwork if they've not been showing a long time or to inspire new people. Like, you know, we started doing the West coast classic in Reno. I mean, Nevada, let's face it, is not really known as a rabbit state, right? But we started putting on a big show there every year, every spring. And I can't tell you how many people, you know, are local Nevadans now that, that are, are showing rabbits because they were exposed to it because of that show. So um, having shows and having national shows or breed shows in certain areas, um, does help to inspire people just like just like having you know a breed come to your town so yeah absolutely um a lot of people you know i've heard them say i got into this breed because a national was coming and i wanted to be part of that yes so awesome um before we get rolling i do want to give a a big shout out to canon brown he is our producer and he's with barra media Uh, he's based in tucson arizona and he does a fabulous job i mean uh canon is um he had has a podcast of his own and it's called the show and it's dedicated to livestock and he also produces i think four or five other podcasts dedicated to the livestock industry and this uh the rabbits are his very first exposure to small animals and he has no experience with it but he's done a fantastic job figuring out our language every week and and going through and and spending hours and hours editing what what brian and i talk about so big shout out to to canon there in arizona uh, with barra media uh thanks for all you do and uh thanks for allowing us to share what we do with people around the world that uh, that love rabbits and cavies as much as we do. Um, and one other last thing, if you guys are not uh, tuned into The Rabbit Tree on Facebook, that's The Rabbit Tree, it's uh, serving as our hub. So every week we post uh, the latest episode and, and links to it through 
uh, Apple Podcast and Spotify and also Audible. So if you're not already on Facebook with The Rabbitry, go ahead and find or search The Rabbitry, like and follow it so you don't miss another episode of Best in Show. So, Bryony, I think we're ready to roll into the uh, segment called uh, This Time In. And this week, I picked 1999. And oddly enough, it was uh, a satin newsletter that I bumped into that uh, inspired me to, to talk about some things that was going on in the, in the satin world in 1999. But maybe before we do that, you want to give us some current events as to what was going on in the world in 1999? Sure. Um On January 3rd, the Mars Polar Lander was launched by NASA. For whatever reason, we've shown a great interest in space and the British royal family um, (laughs) on this podcast, but that's okay. Well, you and I both have a thing for it, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, In February, Pluto moved along its orbit farther from the sun than Neptune. It had been near the Neptune since 1979. And as far as I'm concerned, Pluto is still a planet. So there. On February 12th, this has been a big story for the past year, U.S. President Bill Clinton was acquitted in impeachment proceedings in the United States Senate. Um, So yes, during my lifetime, two presidents have been impeached. Um, That makes three total in the U.S. And just a small civics lesson to clear up a misconception, impeachment only means that some charges have been brought against a president. It's like charges being filed and, you know, a person being taken to court in our legal system. It doesn't mean that they have been removed. So an impeachment is just um, basically a, a filing of those charges and a holding of the trial in the Senate. Uh, but the media sure runs with it on the opposite. Like, I, th- I think that everyone believes that it's a it's a complete oust just because the media blows it up so much. But yeah, you're right. It's it's really not. It's not. A, it's not a physical oust at that point. So it's no, like, no, maybe, it's not. It could be the precursor. Yeah. And oh, Monica Lewinsky, all the jokes were about Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. I actually remember (laughs) um, I I was in I was a senior in high school and I took U.S. government that year. You did your senior year at my high school. And we just we watched the impeachment trial. It was in the afternoon, like right after lunch. And so we were pretty conversant in all that. Is is that appropriate for high school? That was a lot. Well, I mean, uh, I don't know. I mean, the <laughs> the inappropriate parts really didn't take up that much of the trial. It was like stuff about what is the like that. Um, in March, um, Bertrand Picard and Brian Jones became the first to circumnavigate the Earth in a hot air balloon. I cannot imagine. Um, the Academy Awards, Shakespeare in Love won Best Picture. Um, by April, Bill Gates, his personal fortune had made him the wealthiest individual in the world. In 1999, May 3rd, the uh, Oklahoma tornado outbreak hit um, kind of south and east of the Oklahoma City metropolitan area around Moore. That was a really devastating tornado. Um, it was rated an F5. And that was one that was, you know, talked about for several years and studied a lot. Um on uh, in June, Napster download. Do you remember Napster? Oh my gosh! Yeah, it was the first uh, first place that we could download MP 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 threes. Yeah, MP threes. Yeah, I think they were MP threes, but it was like yeah, a were... it was like a file to file thing. Like you would upload a song, and I would go download it, and it was totally not legal at all. Totally <laughs> illegal. Yeah, none of us got busted for it because literally everybody was doing it in those days. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, in July, another sad event, um, the plane piloted by John F. Kennedy Jr. was crashed um, off Martha's Vineyard, killing him, his wife, Carolyn Bissett, and her sister, Lauren Bissett. 
Um, also in July, the Liberty Bell 7 was raised from the Atlantic Ocean. Um, I, I like space. You know, we've talked about this before. <laughs> um, if you're in Hutchinson, um, and this is to anyone, if you go to any national shows in Hutchinson, one of the best space museums in the country, aside from the Kennedy Space Center, is in Hutchinson, Kansas. I love it. I am a grown-up, and I still ask to go there on my birthday. Um, so you could see all sorts of cool things. They have the original Apollo 13 capsule there. Um, it's so cool. I'm going to vouch for you on that because I was just, of course, in Hutchinson judging the, uh, the national Interact show. And on the way home, I, you know, I flew out of Wichita and the morning I was on Sunday morning, I was in the airport and I was kind of walking around and I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a nerd. So I, I, I tend to read, you know, educational stuff if it's, if it's out there. And there was a huge billboard about, um, the history of aviation in Wichita. I mean, I had no idea that I think it was called the biplane that with the, the dual, um, wings i don't know uh-huh. I, I, just, I just read it two weeks ago but um yeah that that, that all originated there. there there were two guys it was cessna maybe um they they developed a lot of aviation right there in kansas in the Wichita area yeah uh cessna is here um beach is started here um that's it lots yes of, yeah yeah both of them both of them started here um yep. we're we're called the air capital of the world or at least we call ourselves that um <laughs> but you know we have flat ground and you know a lot of wind to fly in um so yeah it's um it's been really interesting it's a big part of our economy here sometimes for the better sometimes the worse um actually the original wichita municipal airport is now the kansas aviation museum and that is where i got married a few years ago no kidding yeah we knew we wanted to do or i knew i wanted to do an art deco style wedding and that's a beautiful Art Deco building. Fred Astaire danced on the floor there. We hardly had to do any decorating. And the thing that was the best was that the guest had something to do between the ceremony and dinner when we were cat herding our family. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there always is that lag time, isn't there? Yeah. So it was nice because, you know, people had something to talk about. They weren't just standing around or like, what do I do now? You know, there were conversation pieces and everybody seemed to enjoy it. Um, and to finish off, for 1999 current events, the Millennium Dome opened in London. Um, top songs in 1999. Any ideas? Oh, man. Ricky Martin? Uh, Living with Uh That was number 10. So, like, oh. this, is, <laughs> this is high school. This is my music. So, mm-hmm. music. Um, number one was actually uh, an artist who had charted in many different decades. That was Cher with Believe. Ah, uh, Icon. Oh, my queen. <laughs> yes. Have you ever seen her in concert? I have not. Oh, you've got to. She's still touring. She's got to be close to 80. We saw her in San Jose like 10 years ago. And it was, she quit saying that she was no longer going to say that she was not going to tour anymore. So she ended up calling her um her tour the Never Say Goodbye Tour. I love <laughs> I'm, it. I'm pretty sure it's still going. Anyway, it's totally worth saying she's great. Um. Also, number two was No Scrubs by TLC. Remember number that, three, yeah. Angel of Mine by Monica. Um, other baby one more time by Britney Spears was number five. Um, the first concert I ever went to was by the artist who had the number eight song. It was every morning by Sugar Ray. I loved Mark McGrath. Oh yeah. Um, and then this is one that surprises me. It's down so far, um, on the chart. Number 19 was smooth with Santana featuring Rob Thomas. Cause that song was everywhere. Massive hit that brought Carlos Santana out of the woodwork. Oh yes. 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 Brilliant song. So that is 1999. All right, cool. Well, I'm going to dive into the rabbit side now. And I picked, like I said, the 1999 issue of Satin News. And uh, it actually reflects, it's a January issue. So it reflects a lot on 1998. 
and which was a big like fall or big winter for for that breed. So in um in that satin news, uh, all of the board of directors in there are boasting in their columns about the big win in 1998, that convention in Portland, Oregon, just, you know, months before where um, Sue Andrews broken black satin dough won best in show. And I remember that was my very first convention that was in Portland in 98. And remarkably, and, and this is this is noted again in some of these directors reports, Sue Andrews, the, the owner of that rabbit, she actually donated the best in show convention winner to the satin auction. I mean, I've just just incredibly generous. And the rabbit was uh, purchased by Sam Glidden from Alaska. And the winning bid was seven hundred and five dollars um, to date. And this, this is more facts around those best in shows to that date. Satins had actually won best in show three times in the 1990 decade at conventions. That's that's remarkable for, for a breed when you think about it, like three Airbnb convention best in shows in the 1990s to the satin breed. They were they were a powerhouse. Um, also noted in there. Satins had actually won more best in shows than any other breed at ARBA sanctioned shows in 1998. So to, to, to finish that year off at the convention with a best in show in the satin, that was uh, a real nod to the breed and the power of the breed and the power that the, the, all of the breeders had worked for uh, and so hard for. Um, winners from within that 1998 convention were also listed in the satin news. And there's some familiar names that are still active today. Best of variety Siamese went to Mike Ritter. Best of variety Chinchilla was Augusta Kiwi. That's Uno Kiwi's uh, judge, Arabic judge, Uno Kiwi's older sister, who is now a veterinarian. Best of Variety Blue and Best Fur, Sam Smith from the Midwest, from Missouri. He's still very active and very famous for his blues. And Best of Variety Red went to uh, Butch Pfeiffer. All of these people are still active in, in rabbits, and a lot of them are actually still active in satins. Also in the satin news from that uh, issue, the working standard for the otter satin were found. Uh, it's hard to believe... Uh, hard to think about the satin breed without otters, but it was actually in 1998 at the Portland convention where they actually had their very first uh, presentation uh, before the standards committee. And that variety was presented by Al Lundy of Wisconsin, also a former ARBA convention best in show winner back in 1979. He won it with a satin. And uh, to wrap it up from the satin news in 1998, 1999, Don Matthews of California was named Mr. Satin 1998. So I think it's time that we uh, roll into our special guest. So today we would like to introduce you to Terry Fender and Amanda Behe. They um, have been for the past year or so running online workshops for District 8 youth that have reached far beyond District 8 and really uh, provided some much needed education and you know, enthusiasm for those of us dealing with some tough times with COVID, and especially for youth kids who are, you know, maybe needing a little bit more encouragement to stick with the project when it's tough to find shows and tough to really participate. Terry serves as the current ARBA District 8 Director. He's also served a past three terms as the District 8 Director prior to this set of terms that he's currently serving. He is also the former chair of the Judges Continuing Education Committee, the former editor of the Judges News Release, a publication of that committee, and as I promised, I would state a very groovy judge. Um, Amanda Behe, also from Ohio, um, has been in Rabbit since 1998. She's currently serving as a 4-H advisor and has been for 17 years. She co-created the ARBA District 8 e-newsletter and worked on that for six years, served as a district webmaster for six years and is doing that again. Um, she has been part of the secretarial team at the Ohio State Rabbit Breeders Association Mini Convention 
um, both as an assistant and as the full show secretary. And she's currently serving as so, the Lima Rabbit Breeders Association Club Secretary and Show Secretary and on the District 8 web team. Amanda is a very busy lady and um, does a lot of work that many of us have benefited from, um, even if we didn't know who exactly was running it from behind the scenes. She's very tech savvy. So uh, thank you so much, Terry and Amanda, for joining us tonight. First of all, let's get to know the two of you a little bit better. Um, Terry, can you tell us how did you get started in rabbits and who were your mentors and um, the story of how you came to this hobby? Well, I guess I was uh, born into it uh, years before I was born. My mom and dad actually raised rabbits uh, on the commercial side of things. And we were just about out of it, uh, had just a few pet rabbits left when uh, my mom was approached about forming an all-rabbit 4-H club. And then a year or two later, my dad came on board. So I guess you could say I was kind of born and raised in it. So I owe a lot of it to 4-H getting me started. Uh, then, of course, doing some of it in the FFA. Uh, as far as my mentors, I guess you'd have to say, of course, my mom and dad, they're the reason I got into it. Uh, the big three, you might say that I really, you might say, modeled my judging after. There's been a lot of them, but uh, uh, Randy Wagner and Caleb Thomas, from, both from Indiana. I've known them since I was <laughs> just a kid, and uh, they've really been, you might say, people I've strived to be like. And then you might say the the, the top guy, Dr. Terry Reed. Uh, he was always such a big influence on me, helped me out as a youth, helped me get my judge's license with a lot of advice, and was just always there to, you might say, have my back and answer any questions for me. That's great. And those are some names that we've already heard several times from other guests. Um, it's amazing the ripple effect some of these people have on our hobby. So, Amanda, how did you get started in rabbits? And who are some of your mentors? And what's your rabbit story? Well, my rabbit story starts at a farm and fleet store. Um, we were one of those people that went over and um, saw the bunnies that we all don't want to see now in stores. Um but I got one from there, and then that fall, or that summer, um, we ended up going to our count, local county fair, and one exhibitor had um, another Lindorfs, and they went like this whole entire row. And I stood around and waited until this young man came back and got um, another Lindorf from him. And as far as the mentors go, um, I have a lady that I'm actually sitting in front of her house or in her house right this moment. She's my blame for doing anything Arba because she dragged me to my very first Arba show. Um, and then later on, we ended up joining, um, creating a 4-H club together. And so Pat Carroll, I guess, is what you can say for that. Um, so it's not really a judge. It's more of an exhibitor. Well, like we've talked about before, mentors can be anybody with a passion for the hobby that helps other people to get started and, you know, go down this rabbit road and improve themselves and learn and everything like that. Yeah. So whenever there's any problems, I can say her name and say that she was a pro she's the reason that I'm I got stress or something like that. <laughs> do, do, do any type of um, rabbit show stuff. 
So since a lot of this interview is going to focus on youth activities, um, Terry, can you start out by telling us what responsibilities district directors have in regards to youth members and youth contests? I guess one thing you could say, uh, you know, being a district director, we represent all of our members, the open and the youth. Um, While the contests themselves may have either a state leader, provincial leader, or in the ARBA, of course, we have Tom Berger, the ARBA youth, uh, you might say youth leader, youth chair. The director still gets involved uh, when the teams are formed for, you might say, competition, the state teams, provincial teams. Of course, the district director is the one that, that the state will submit the teams to us. Uh, we're the ones that sign off on of them, give them a thumbs up. And uh, usually we end up assisting with some of the contests at convention. Uh, some of the things that we also do, or at least I do here in D8, is uh, we do have an educational budget, which traditionally has been used for judges' conferences. Uh, but for several years, I've been uh, making some of the funds available to the official state or provincial team. You know, we can't share, you know, we don't have a huge budget, but we can offer enough to possibly uh, buy an extra standards book. Uh, pay for some of the copying expenses that the states or provinces might have. So we're kind of a support, you know, we kind of support. It's the uh, state leaders, the provincial leaders that really are the ones that work with them direct. But quite often, you know, we'll get, uh, you know, help with some of the training sessions if we're around. And just about every year at convention, you know, I'm in there doing something at the convention contest itself, whether it be, know, interviewing some of the contestants or assisting with the judges' contest. So you might say there's a big part that uh, that probably the directors get pulled into that, you know, folks may not realize. Oh, absolutely. Um, I remember as a youth contest participant myself seeing several directors involved with that, um, sometimes on interviews, which made me a little nervous. But I also <laughs> really appreciated that they took the time to help youth members and show an interest in that side of the hobby. Um, I notice on your District 8 website that you have youth representatives for several states and then an overall District 8 youth representative. Can you tell us a little bit about how those are selected and what their duties are? Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, we call that the uh, District 8 Youth Advisory Council. And I put this together the uh, the first time I was in office and uh, continued with it now. I always thought that, you know, we're representing the youth, but sometimes you need to hear, hear from the young people themselves. So that's why I put this council together. Uh, it consists of uh, one member from each state or province. And, of course, here in District 8, we have four states and two provinces. So we have six total members. And I usually try and rotate different ones in and out each year to give everyone, you know, a little bit more opportunity to take part. But with the way things were last year, it wasn't a normal year. So unless our young people aged out, I kept the committee or the council uh, the same this year. And we call it, they, they're there to advise me if there's something that comes up on the board that we're going to vote on that affects the youth. I might bounce that off of them because... If it's affecting the youth, I think they ought to have some input. Um, Plus, here in District 8, we have a a policy on how our district teams are formed. And it's always been aimed primarily at those areas that don't have an official state or provincial team. 
And that's always been the, you know, the concept, but it was never really in black and white. So to make things a little clearer, you know, we put this policy together several years ago. It outlines, you know, what, you know, who takes priority because if there's a team involved or if there's no state team available. And when we put this together, we went to the, uh, the uh, youth council because, again, the kids were involved. And we also got advice from the uh, adult leaders from each state and province. And uh, uh, that way you had all different aspects involved there. You know, but getting back to our youth council, uh, they're a good bunch of kids. Uh, we keep in touch, of course, now mostly by email. And every year I usually have the kids review our team policy. So that's something else they get to do. And when we have our workshops that we'll talk about in a little while, uh, they're involved with helping promote the workshops. And they're some of the first ones to find out before, you know, we make it public. That sounds like a great opportunity. Um, I know that a lot of the benefit of the youth program in Rabbits is gaining some of these leadership skills that can be applied anywhere else in life. Yeah, I think it's a great opportunity for them. It looks good on their Rabbit or KV resume, too. And uh, one thing we didn't touch on was the actual District 8 youth rep. That's pretty much on, you might say, the ARBA or the board level. That's kind of the national aspect. But I still pull them into what we do on the uh, youth council as well, just to get another voice in there and to, you know, make sure they have, have some input on that. That sounds great. Um, so my next question is for both of you. Um, in a normal year, uh, something we're hoping to get back to soon, what kind of educational or competitive youth activities are standard throughout District 8? Uh, and that's both like on the ARBA, 4-H, or, or any other level. Okay, well, in District 8, you know, we actually don't have, as in most districts, we don't actually have, you know, like a showmanship contest or anything. It's most of that does fall on our state level. And some of that may vary by the state how they carry things out. But that goes mainly back to youth department in each state or province. And uh, I know many of them will have, of course, showmanship. They'll have the royalty, uh, judging, uh, breed ID, some may do uh, uh, skillathon or uh, more of a quiz bowl type session. Uh, 4-H, I know at least here in Ohio, they do a lot of the similar things on the state level, and they recently started doing uh, uh, quiz bowl as well. And I think that's really good practice because, you know, whether they win or lose, you might say on the state level, that still prepares them if they're going to be on the team going to convention. So, you know, every little step gives them a little more experience and gives them a little more confidence, I think. That sounds great. Um, Amanda, I know that you're pretty heavily involved with 4-H. Can you tell us a little bit about that um, around District 8? Are, are, is that a project within a club or are there specific rabbit clubs or how is that structured? It is based, it's structured by your state. Um, I'm actually involved with a 4-H club in um, my local county, which is Dark County in Ohio. And we, um, like, um, as far as education goes, like in my, in my 4-H club, we do a lot of hands-on um, with our education. I'll do a lot of team working with them. Um, but some of the, some of my kids go to state fair and some of them don't. Does Ohio have a state contest at the state fair and what are those?
for the Did we leave? No, I'm still here. Oh, okay. Um, I, th- I think for this, I'm not, my kids are not um, particularly involved with the state fair, but I know that they have, I believe they have um, breed ID and skillathon quest or um, competitions there and the, the quiz bowl that Terry mentioned. Okay, so a skillathon is like a quiz bowl? Skillathon is more where you're doing breed ID. Uh, and like, oh, or Ohio actually has a skillathon kit. Um, that some other counties use, and it has disease um, recognitions for things. It has body parts, um, and like there's like a husbandry thing. Like you like see a picture, and if what's wrong with this picture? Like they'll have mounds of feces underneath, um, broken cages. So they have their own little skillathon kit that they use. And they have also genetics on there as well. Oh, interesting. So it's just kind of a multifaceted everything about rabbits then. Yes. So what is the role of um, either state association or 4-H leaders in organizing these activities? And what kind of volunteer opportunities are there? That's basically broke down per club. Okay, Terry, did you have something to add to that? Yeah, I was going to say, uh, you know, the 4-H, a lot of it is club and county. Uh, for the ARBA side of things, most of our states or provinces have, uh, you might say, like the Ohio State Rabbit Breeders, Michigan State Rabbit Breeders, and the like there. And they really control what goes on on their state level uh, for their youth contests. And then, of course, they put their teams together to go to convention and then it comes back to the, like we said earlier, to the director to uh, put their uh, signature on. Okay. So since everything has changed in the past year and the pandemic resulted in cancellation of most shows, fairs, et cetera, um, what has both the official District 8 and, you know, what have uh, member states and provinces done to continue to educate youth breeders and keep them engaged and interested in the hobby? Well, one thing that we had started uh, before everything went wild in uh, the fall of uh, 2019, we started doing these uh, workshops live at uh, a variety of the shows. Uh, We uh, recorded as many as we could and even uh, did some, uh, broadcasted some on Facebook as well. But of course, when the show stopped, that put a little uh, uh, problem into everything. And uh, Amanda can talk about this a little bit from her end, but uh, her 4-H club was doing these virtual events, so we put our heads together and thought, hmm, you know, we can't do the live events. 4-H is doing some virtual events, so we took these uh, uh, vir- workshops virtual, and while they may lack a little bit of the hands-on that we did at the live events, I think it really reaches a lot more people. Um, District 8 is just so large that we can't get somebody from our web team to every live event when we had these. Whereas now that we're virtual, uh, everybody that's got access to the internet can go on, tune into our uh, Facebook channel, or if they miss that later, go back to YouTube. And uh, it's just amazing how many people are tuning in. It's just, uh, you know, something that we started off for our district eight youth, but everyone was welcome, of course. And now that we're virtual, it's it's just uh, I, 
I just can't put it into words how excited I am by this. I mean, every time we have an event, uh, we're able to see viewers from, of course, across the U.S., Canada. Uh, we regularly have uh, some viewers from Indonesia. I've noticed some from Australia, Japan, and actually even Peru. And that one really caught me off guard there. And along these same lines, I think a lot of the 4-H clubs are doing this too. I know I've spoke at uh, virtually to several 4-H groups, and uh, you know I'm really impressed. Uh, I know sometimes Facebook and everything gets a bad rap, but uh, I think this is one time that uh, social media, you know, does a positive thing. Oh, absolutely. Um, so, what are some of the topics that have been featured in these workshops? Uh, well, we alternate back and forth, uh, rabbit and KV. Uh, the largest number, you know, have been rabbit, but we've had several KV events. I know one time we did uh, back to back, but we talk about, uh, you know, like in the rabbit side of things, uh, posing and handling, of course. Uh, you really, uh, <clears throat> last year when you did one for us, uh, Brian, you really knocked it out of the park. That was a grand slam you did for us. Just a super job. Uh, we break it down into different breeds of rabbits. Uh, KVs, we've talked about grooming, preparing them for show. Uh, Amanda, you want to join in there and see what else you recall? Um, I actually have a cheat sheet, and I've got the um, YouTube channel up that we have, <laughs> which is um, Arba D8 website, and it has all of the lists of um, workshops that we have done. So we've done anywhere from Texels on KVs to Mini Rex to Netherland Dwarfs. We actually... Um, did one back in, it looks like, I believe, March, where it actually started as a project for my 4-H club. Um, we had lots of, we have multiple speakers, and we had Roger um, Hassenflug. He actually did a um, presentation for us. Uh, the kids asked him to talk on the ARBA standard changes for the 2021-2025 standard, and we I listened it through the 4-H club side of it and brought it back to Terry and he um, had just, he had Roger did it for district eight, which was followed up by KVs. Uh, Mary Lou Eisel had done one for us as well on the standard changes. And then we've had, um, we've had Rylanders, um, Dwarf Hotos, Belgian Hares, Mini Satin, Silver Martins, Palominos. We've done um, KV husbandry and nutrition preparing your KVs for show. We've done rabbits, um, preparing them for show. We've also gone along with English spots. And then, of course, Terry mentioned um, posing and handling. And then we've done silvers, Polish, um, and Angora breeds and wool evaluation, Himalayans, English lops, um, lilacs, lionheads, American sables. We did one. Um, we had one that was done about the KVs and the colors and terminology. Um, which was mind-blowing for a rabbit person to know about the um, varieties that they have in KVs. And um, other than that, that's basically what we've done so far. Well, that sounds like a pretty extensive list. And like you said, a good balance of rabbit and KV topics. Um, because we know that kids who participate in those contests, even if they only raise one species, are you know tested on both. Exactly. Plus, you know, for we judges too, you know, us rabbit judges, we're not licensed for KVs, but you know, there are times when we do handle some of the ARBA shows. So I don't think it hurts the rabbit people to, you know, learn a little bit more. It's not going to hurt you to learn. 
Never. And, and it is a whole different world. The colors are very different. Um, you know, I don't know that I would pursue a KV license, but I don't want to be incompetent. <laughs> exactly. I A few years ago, I got, they told me there'd be a couple of KVs at a show I was at, and there ended up being, I think, 20 some, and I was sweating a little bit, but... Uh, but it was actually a fun experience there. And I did find out that reading those little tags in the KV ears, <laughs> we complain about tattoo numbers and rabbits being hard to read. Well, I felt like I needed my spectacles. I tell you, I had trouble reading those things. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine they're tiny. So um, I know that you both have very specific roles during these workshops. Can you just um, walk us through what goes on during a workshop and what a participant could expect? Uh, Amanda is pretty much, you might say, the tech side of things. So my job starts in reaching out to people uh, to uh, obtain the speakers. And, you know, we've been fortunate. We've had a lot of people step up and say, yes, we'll help out. And, you know, I truly appreciate that. But for probably every speaker we get, there's a lot of emails sent out that either don't get responded to or receive a no response back. So, you know, that's okay because I know, you know, this isn't everybody's cup of tea. But, you know, I just, you know, want people to realize that every person we ask, you know, doesn't respond or doesn't care to. And again, that's okay. But we get our speakers. Um, and then we start working with Amanda to uh, schedule the date because I'm pretty flexible in what I can do. So whatever date and time works for the speaker and works for Amanda is fine with me. And then once we get that put together, uh, either uh, Amanda, she's one half of our web team, uh, Jane Burt's the other half of our web team, uh, one of those will put together a promotional flyer. And then once we have that done, I immediately put it on our uh, private page where we have our state, state and provincial reps. And then we send it out to the uh, adult youth leaders across the, the D8 states and provinces. And then, of course, we send it to our uh, uh, youth council, and we ask them all to promote these events. And then, uh, of course, during the event itself, I'm kind of, you might say, I'm the warm-up act. I'm the MC and uh, introduce our speaker and maybe ask a question or two here and there. And then... Uh, that's pretty much my role. So, Amanda, if you want to go into your tech side, that's something you're better at there. Yes. Um, basically, once Terry talks with and gets the person and we get scheduled, um, the next session is not everybody. We I'll go. We run off of Zoom, and not everybody um, has experience with Zoom. So I will do like a login session with them to, to make sure that they know how to log into Zoom. Um, and then once we're in, when we're broadcasting in Zoom, we actually go Facebook Live is how the viewers see it. Um, I have in the past, I've had speakers that have been wonderful as far as their technology goes. And then I've had other ones where I've taught them how to make a PowerPoint or I've made the PowerPoints for them that they have um, used as their demonstration. So there's, a, as far as the speakers go, um, we've had lots of different technology sides. So there's um, that aspect. And then once we're actually in the Facebook Live, I actually, it looks like I have a control center because I've got one computer screen that is operating the Zoom. I've got another screen that is operating the actual PowerPoint that is being broadcast onto the Facebook Live. I have my cell phone 
handy with me. And that is basically to like look at questions. And then it's easiest if I have my laptop because I actually respond back and forth to the um, participants that can ask questions live um, that we will we'll, we talk to the speaker about afterwards, um, their presentation. And I'm just monitoring the questions. That sounds um, very involved, but it sounds like you have it down to a science. Yes. Um, of so, course, sometimes things that are out of control, you might drop a signal. You know, we had, as we mentioned earlier, uh, when we were talking before we went on air, Amanda had a tornado uh, go by her house one time. We had to call it off, but uh, things happen. <laughs> well, I didn't really have a tornado. I had a tornado siren. Um, but there was one episode, it was kind of funny that we had that there was some signal issues and the speaker ran off, like lost signal. And as soon as the, sig- the speaker got back on, Terry um, ended up losing signal later on in the in the program as well. And the difference is, I mean, like, we're live. So we have to um, adapt with the situations that we have. Yes, absolutely. So tell us a little bit more about the, the tornado siren. That's something that um, non-Midwesterners are completely fascinated with. Oh, well, we were... Um, just before we were we were in a session because we actually before we do our sessions we have the speaker come on and talk to us just chit-chatting around kind of thing about 20 minutes before and i was looking outside the window and saw like the trees like blowing and all this kind of stuff and i'm like oh you know guys it's kind of windy here and the next thing you know um the tornado siren was going off well they could they could hear it quite well um terry and the speaker could because this tornado siren is right across the street from my house. So I basically went downstairs to the basement, made a post on Facebook that says we were going to be delayed because I had a tornado siren going off in my house or in my town. And as soon as it was done, we came back on and proceeded with the Facebook live workshop. See, like any good Midwesterner, as soon as it's over, back to real life. (laughs) Yeah, right. I was just really disappointed in her because I thought the very least she could have taken her laptop downstairs and kept going through the storm. But for some reason, she put personal safety ahead of that. So I guess I can live with that. <laughs> well, I also have two computer screens, a cell phone, and a laptop. So <laughs> <laughs> not going to take that down in the basement real quick. So um, at these sessions, um, how many attendees do you usually have? Well, that can vary. Sometimes during the session itself, you may not see the huge number, but throughout the throughout the presentation, it grows. And then days and weeks afterwards, you continue to see the hits. I think so far, probably our biggest one was uh, uh, Roger Hassenflug doing the standard changes. Uh, last time I looked, we had well over 2,500 views on that. Uh, but during the event itself, uh, Amanda, you can probably talk on that a little more since, you know, I'm operating off my iPhone during the session, whereas you've got uh, Houston, Houston controls. Yeah, as far as like the live part goes, um, it just depends on the session. We normally have like 30 to 40 people watching it live, um, but it's hard to actually know exactly how many people watch it um, because you have like your YouTube, we have our YouTube views 
And then you've also got your Facebook live or your Facebook replay views. Um, so sometimes I think we've got, we've hit some of the videos I believe have hit a thousand views just on the, on the, uh, Facebook. That's really impressive. Um, I know Terry, you gave us kind of a list of countries that they'd reached and it sounds like they're reaching many, many States in the U S as well. That's, that's impressive. Yeah, it's just incredible. You know, we started doing this more on a local level, shows in District 8, and uh, everyone was always involved, invited, but the main thing was our District 8 youth. And then when we opened it up virtually, I'm like, yeah, this is great. We can reach more people. But, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm still in awe how many people, I mean, I'm so thankful for this. I mean, it's not you know not unusual to see so many of our states involved, multiple you know Canadian provinces, and then you know we started seeing the, in Indonesia we've got some uh, very loyal viewers, and then we've seen some in Mexico starting up. Uh, I think we had Norway one time, but uh, yeah, it's just incredible. I mean, I think part of it people might be bored without the shows, and they want something to keep in contact with their hobby. And plus, uh, it's just a, you know, good learning experience, but I'm just, you know, so in awe and I want to, you know, thank our speakers for giving of their time and, of course, thank the people for uh, joining in. I mean, that's the reason we're doing this for. Yeah, absolutely. So um, what are some of the more interesting things that both of you have heard or learned during this process? Well, there's a variety of things on KVs. Uh, you know, I I try. I know I'm not a KV judge, but since I represent both sides of our hobby and our district, I try and you know at least be uh, capable on them there. So uh, it's just different little things you pick up there. Uh, uh, how to even how to sex a KV? That's you know makes me a little nervous. But helping you know watching that's been a big help to me, and just different things in the breeds that you pick up. Uh, even though, you know, you may have been judged a long time, you're hearing from a judge that actually, in most cases, raises that breed. And sometimes it makes you think, wow, I didn't really realize that. So, uh, you know, just uh, you're never done learning. Indeed, you're not. Amanda, are there any kind of surprising things that you've learned or heard during these workshops? Um, I'm going to be honest. I don't, because of my technical side of it, I don't actually get to watch them as they're happening. Um, because I'm going in between both um, all of my screens on my computers, um, but a lot of the a lot of it basically runs back to the KV side, just because I don't I I don't have experience with KVs. Um, and when we had the colors and terminology um, session, that was real the one that was really eye opening to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I know, Terry, you mentioned earlier that the youth representatives are involved in promoting this, but how exactly do um, these workshops get publicized? Well, a number of ways. Um, of course, I uh, we get the flyer and we, uh, you know, I send it out to our state reps, our youth reps, our adult youth leaders. Then if I share that, uh, depending and I try and do as as regarding how long we have to go. Normally, we have at least a weeks, sometimes two weeks before the event. So sometimes we'll go out and share them on a variety of state club Facebook pages. And then I ask, of course, the uh, youth leaders and everybody to share them to their pages. So sometimes they may get shared two or three or four times, you know, from one person to the next. And uh, 
uh, our Facebook page, our website. We try and use that to uh, advertise the events. And uh, actually, I think some of it's word of mouth, too. Word gets out what's going on, and uh, that always helps, too. Oh, absolutely. That's some of the best advertisement in the hobby. And when shows are actually, seems like shows are starting to take place a little bit more. Uh, in the past, we'd even take some of these flyers to the shows as well because, you know, not everybody may be on Facebook to see them or somebody just might not be on at the right time or notice it. So uh, the shows we're going to, I try and take flyers to. And now that, you know, they're starting to take place a little bit more, we hope to be doing that as well. Absolutely. So um, what advice would you have if there are other groups or maybe 4-H clubs that wanted to deliver some of their content virtually? Well, I guess one of the things is make sure you've got somebody uh, very tech savvy, like uh, Amanda is here. Uh, Be open to doing a variety of topics and just don't concentrate on rabbits or just on KVs. Try and do both of them. Uh, to cover because a lot of the kids may do both so that's a good thing Uh, and also one thing we've tried to do which uh, I know maybe for 4-H it might be a little hard to do but if possible maybe bring in speakers from across the country because you know just like uh, sometimes somebody you'll let some of the young people might listen to somebody they don't see every day as opposed to me that they might see more often so uh, we try and get speakers that's We've even went to Hawaii. We've had Canadian speakers uh, just from different areas. Plus, not only is it a different face, but sometimes just a little different point of view. And that kind of brings in a little excitement. And, of course, I'd tell these people to promote, promote, promote. Absolutely. So, Amanda, what kind of tech skills are necessary to pull this off? Um, It's not – I mean, it's – you basically, I learned how to do Zoom um, right in, back in March of last year, and I actually had um, our guest speakers were. Um, I, I went and took, and we went and from we went. And, we had speakers from Oregon, um, West Virginia, North Carolina, Ohio. Um, trying, I'm trying. I'm sitting here trying to think where everybody was from that um, did them, um, but. You just have to, I don't know, it just comes second nature to me. So I'm not really sure what technology um, to really use besides Zoom. And um, I have the, I have the advanced one so that I can broadcast live and record. Um, so I just, it's basically just, I don't know, like just techie stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to, desc- it's hard to describe because like in our, like in our generation, we're like, we're used to technical and changing um, so, and yeah, Brian, I, think, uh, I, guess, I guess I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm trying to figure out how to say it because, uh, it's just, it comes second nature. Yeah. I think people our age are maybe a little more comfortable with just getting into one of these applications and playing with it. Right. Then maybe somebody would be that is not a quote unquote digital native. Right. Because we've had some speakers that have not been in the digital um, section, so they were scared. Or they weren't unnecessarily scared, but they were apprehensive to um, to speak for us. So they gave me their material, and I put it into a PowerPoint, and they learned how to do Zoom. So, I mean, basically, we've had a lot of the speakers have 
either had experience with it or they were brand new to the whole technology side of it. Well, it sounds like you're pretty well practiced in helping them overcome some of those um, nerves about technology. Right. So how do you think that um, virtual education, how or how will it um, continue to advance the hobby? Uh, Well, personally, I think it'll continue and maybe even take a bigger role. I mean, we've always used technology somewhat since I've been in office, but now we were basically forced to. And in one way, that's been good. Um, Going back to these workshops, yes, we did have several people watching before on our YouTube channel. But now that it's kind of went, you might say, worldwide, it's just opening up so many more eyes and getting so many more views. And I just think even when things return to, that's hopefully normal, but even doing so, people's gotten used to doing this. And you can't have somebody from, let's say, Washington State at an Ohio show every weekend to speak to our young people. But now, you know, with technology, we can travel to there. We could we traveled out to Hawaii and saw Cheryl Inglink. And that's just not something that's open to local shows every weekend. So I think we're going to keep on doing that. I mean, it just brings so many positive opportunities. I mean, most of our people in District 8, they wouldn't see Cheryl Inglink on a regular basis. Or a lot of them wouldn't see, you know, Bryony, we used you. And, you know, we don't see... You every day here in Ohio or Roger Hassenflug, just to name a few. But here, uh, you know, might say uh, flip a switch and they're checking they're checking out to see what you have to say. So, you know, I say keep it up. So um, does District 8 then plan to continue these workshops and um, will they be fully online or a hybrid of um, some recorded maybe in person and at shows or just continue to kind of have some separation between the show workshops and the virtual workshop? Well, you might say I'm playing it as we go. For the time being, we're going to keep on doing it virtual. As the shows start coming back, yeah, I would like to see some live events because, you know, virtually we're reaching more people, but still I like to see that hands-on for the kids. And uh, uh, before all the, everything went haywire, uh, we used some funds. We bought a brand-new speaker system, and, uh, of course, we had the technology already to record things, but the speaker made the sound quality so much better at the shows, and it came over better on the recordings. Uh, so we do have the equipment to take it back live, and when things maybe calm down a little bit more, we'll do that. But uh, as far as right now, I'm just really happy with uh, you know how things are going online. But down the road, yeah, I'd like to see a little bit of both. Yeah, absolutely. The The hands-on is really hard to beat. Um, mm-hmm. There are a lot of things that just need to be felt or, you know, seen up closely in person. Yeah, I remember our first one. Um, we did uh, our first one. It was in June of 19, and that was a test event. And I did it at my home club show. And in case it didn't go over, I'd rather have done that at my show instead of somebody else's. And uh, fortunately, it did. We counted, I think, 50 young people plus adults around the table and we had an ARBA legend in Glenn Carr speaking, and uh, just seeing those young kids up there hanging over the table, just taking in every word that Glenn had to say, and it, it just makes me think how much it helps, but that makes me think also, you know, why we need the live events. Yeah, the kids could watch Glenn online, but 
just seeing hanging over the table looking at him in person. So, yeah, we want to do both of them. That sounds fantastic. So um, a last question I have for you. We ask about everybody this. And um, Amanda, we'll start with you. Describe your perfect rabbit show. Um, I, as far as like for the show secretary side of things, um, where the exhibitors have all of their entries in properly um, and the show's starting on time and keeping things running at the show tables as far as um, your show superintendent side. So basically organization is the big thing that is the perfect rabbit show in my eyes. Okay. And Terry, can you tell us about your perfect rabbit show? Okay. I think I'll take it from the judge's point of view, a table that has uh, plenty of length to do running breeds, plenty of holes to hold your largest class, perfect lighting, perfect ventilation. Uh, The show staff brings all the paperwork timely and all the exhibitors show up in a good mood on time. I guess that would be mine. And Also, they remember to bring me a Dr. Pepper between classes. (laughs) It's the little things. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So before we end our time here, um, tell us how we can find these workshops online. Okay, I'll do one and I'll split it with Amanda. Uh, First of all, uh, on our YouTube channel, this is where Amanda records the events and places them a few days after the event. Our YouTube channel is ARBA D8 website, and that's totally free, open to everybody, 4-H, ARBA, FFA, people from wherever. It's totally free and open to everybody. And Amanda, you want to tell about the Facebook part? Um, as far as the Facebook part goes, um, they are. you can click on, I believe we have a live and a video um, segment on the uh, for the tabs on our Facebook page, which is the official Arba D8 um, Facebook page, and you can go back and you can watch the videos that happened as they were live. So you can see the comments that everybody had as well for the questions that came through. Excellent. Well, I'm sure that you guys will have many more views after this. I hope so. It's it's such a benefit to have that education available for everyone and kind of archived so that people can go watch it at their own leisure. Well, thank you both so much for joining us here and sharing some of this with us and for all of your work in flexing and adapting and overcoming the challenges of 2020. Well, we certainly appreciate you having us on here and helping get the word out. And uh, I thank you for all you do. And uh, we invite everybody to come over and see what we have to offer in District 8 as well. Normally, the fourth segment of our podcast is education, but we felt the need to address a topic in the rabbit world that has left a lot of us with a hole in our hearts. As many know, um, our friend and yours, Doug Hara, passed away a few days ago. Um, He'd been one of the supporters of the podcast in the beginning, so we wanted to say a little bit about him. Um, Alan, can you share some of your memories of Doug with us? You know, he's just... I don't have a lot of words for it because um, it it just it struck me. You know, we we hear so often, you know, treasure the people that are in your life and 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 contact them and say hi and and you never know when is going to be the last time. And 
when we recorded the episode with Doug, I mean, I had no idea that, that, and he didn't know he didn't, that was gonna be the last time that we were going to get together. I mean, um, he's just one of those guys that, you know, you're at a convention or a, or a big show if you're judging in the Midwest and you just expect him to be there. I mean, here he was, um, slated to be the superintendent of the upcoming convention in Louisville. Um, he was president of the Florida white club. He was an active participant for decades and a lovely human being at the same time. He was the guy that you could not pass by at a convention without getting the biggest, warmest hug from. And I know that this resonates, you know, with you, with you, Brian, as well. And a lot of us, I mean, yes, we are at a certain age range. I'm not going to mention our age, but you know, we still are considered kind of like the young guns and he was part of the old guard. And I have never met anyone that was so open and accepting and, you know, never really, you know, happy with accepting status quo. Like if you're a young person, you've got a new idea and like us doing this crazy podcast, you know, he'd be the first one there to stand up and, and cheer from wherever he was in the room and clap his hands genuinely and probably have tears in his eyes at the same time. So, um, it's, it's, it's an incredible loss for our industry and, and for everyone that was, that was affected by him. And I I will say, if you, if you never knew Doug, you did know Doug because Doug was a part of each and every one of us, each and every one of us that are involved because I always knew like, Hey, Doug will support this. You know, he's he's just got, he has that mentality and um, he will be incredibly missed. So to Doug, we love you. And we thank you for your years of support and, um, your paternal, your paternal self. You know, I don't remember when I met Doug and you would think that I would, but I don't. Um, we haven't been friends for that many years, but I do remember the first thing was, you know, it was just that feeling of meeting a kindred spirit. Um, obviously we're both rabbit people, but I think we both look at it from the same perspective. This hobby kind of scratches a different itch for everyone. For some people it's, you know, just a sense of community or enjoying the animals or, you know, a chance to work with youth and offer leadership. Um, But I know for both of us, this is why we bonded immediately. We just really like the opportunity this hobby affords us to try to achieve perfection, to try to better what's out there, to try to better ourselves, our animals. Um, You know, we both have a very strong competitive drive. And it's not, you know, it's not to beat other people, but it's to breed that unbeatable rabbit. Um, and so we, we struck it off. We had a great friendship. You know, I know anytime I would message him, he was right there right away, you know, great advice, always enthusiastic for what we were doing. Um, and I've seen so many tributes on Facebook. He was like that with so, so many of us. I don't know how that man had the time in the day to, you know, help and encourage and really be a friend and a mentor to so, so many of us. And like you said, even if you don't know Doug, you did. His impact is far reaching. Um, I think a lot of us are going to feel his hand on our shoulder for a very long time. Um, he was actually like, like I've said before in his episode, he was the first person that I kind of floated this crazy idea to because he'd been part of the best in show committee at, um, Indianapolis when we first did the commentary and, you know, was just so supportive. I, I said, yeah, I'll do it. I'll, I'll say anything in front of anybody. I have no stage fright. So, so I, I'll, I'll do this. Um, and then, you know, the first thing I remember when I came down from the stage was there was Doug with a big grin on his face saying, quit your day job. And I thought, you know, if anyone will tell me whether he thinks it's a good idea and then encourage us 
to, you know, the ends of the earth if he does, it'll be Doug. So he was actually the first person I told about this. Um, and he was he was encouraging from the beginning. And through every episode, um, every update he heard about this, you know, he was sending encouragement. You know, you guys are going to do a great job. This is an ingenious idea. You know, I have your back. Um, if you want a booth, we'll get you a great spot at convention. And that's just that's who he was. And, um, this hobby is better for him being a part of it. I think, um, you know, we've heard through this podcast, a lot of names mentioned over and over and over as someone who was a mentor, someone who inspired generations or in Reynolds, Faber McGee, Doc Reed, and Doug Hare is going to be on that list. Um, he's going to be with us for a very long time. Yes, he will. And this year has this actually the spring has been kind of devastating to our our hobby because we've not only lost Doug but we've also lost some other very familiar very um meaningful faces in in the ARBA and um it's it's been a tough year we know <laughs> tough year and a half and it really hits home when you lose people that are so so close to you and and what we do and and, and truly affect us uh, as you said um do you want to mention some of those names that we've also lost. Yeah. Um, just a couple days before um, ARBA judge Kevin Rudolph from Washington passed away. Um, if you didn't know Kevin, he, his heart was larger than life. He was such a kind guy. And even when some health problems kind of affected his ability to participate, he always found a way to participate in this hobby, to give back and to encourage people. And, and I just really admired that. Um, he was, we, uh, I have a, I have a, I have a Kevin story too. Uh, you know, West Coast Classic sometimes is bigger than we, than we think, <laughs> than we, than we initially bite. And there were times where we were like, okay, we need judges bad. And Kevin and, and Scott, they drove down and, and Kevin judged for us. And he was in a wheelchair, but man, biggest grin on his face, happiest guy in the room to sit there and, and judge, you know, judge rabbits like he loved to do so much and be around the people that he, adored. So uh, a truly wonderful man, as you've said. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Also recently, Judge Robert Caldwell from Oklahoma passed away. Um, He didn't, I don't think, travel a whole lot out of the Midwest, um, but he was a familiar face at our show. And just another guy who would give you the shirt off of his back, was always smiling, was always encouraging. Um, I last saw him at a show here in Oklahoma just a few weeks ago in March, and he won double best in show with his chestnut Netherland dwarf. He hadn't been out of show a couple of years. Um, that was a wonderful day. And uh, Brent Rice from Iowa also recently passed away. Another Midwestern guy who was a stalwart mentor to many. Um, I worked with him for both my registrar's and my judge's license. I'll never forget his blunt advice. Brent told it like it was, and people loved him for it. Um, he told me, if you can't be a good judge, at least be a bad, fast judge. <laughs> <laughs> I can totally hear him saying that. Yeah, Brent told it like it was. And all of these guys will be sorely missed. And we do want to extend our sympathies to their family as, as well. Um, you know, we knew them as friends, as part of the rabbit world. But to their families, they were fathers, brothers, grandfathers, husbands, and we sincerely appreciate the time that you gave up with them to allow them to be part of our world. Um, the rabbit world is richer for their presence. Normally, we end these episodes with a quote, 
tonight. Um, we're going to end with a poem that I feel is fitting to honor Doug and our other friends that we will be missing for a while. It's called Death is Nothing at All by Henry Scott Holland. It was actually not written as a poem. It was part of a sermon that um, Henry preached while Edward VIII or Edward VII of England was lying in state in Westminster Abbey. Death is nothing at all. It does not count. I have only slipped away into the next room. Nothing has happened. Everything remains exactly as it was. I am I, and you are you, and the old life that we lived so fondly together is untouched, unchanged. Whatever we were to each other, that we are still. Call me by the old familiar name. Speak of me in the easy way which you always used. Put no difference into your tone. Wear no forced air of solemnity or sorrow. Laugh as we always laughed at the little jokes that we enjoyed together. Play. Smile. Think of me. Pray for me. Let my name be ever the household word that it always was. Let it be spoken without an effort, without the ghost of a shadow upon it. Life means all that it ever meant. It is the same as it ever was. There is absolute and unbroken continuity. What is this death but a negligible accident? Why should I be out of mind because I am out of sight? I am but waiting for you for an interval, somewhere very near, just round the corner. All is well. Nothing is hurt. Nothing is lost. One brief moment and all will be as it was before. How we shall laugh at the trouble of parting when we meet again.